Welcome back to Rollin' Bones, the osteopathic podcast. I'm your host, Dr. James, along with Dr. Dante, and we've got our last host, our last guest, excuse me, Dr. Nathan, back to talk more about your health, your body, and your diet, and how we need to fix things. And uh, Dr. Nathan, thanks for joining us again. The last episode was great. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be back. Well, and we're excited because... You know, we, we talked about biochemistry last time. We talked about physics, boom, 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 more physics, and the laws of thermodynamics. And in discussing this episode, we decided that maybe we need to clarify a little bit more about what we meant about the laws, the first law of thermodynamics. Now, we, we may have left you with a little bit of a cliffhanger, thinking that perhaps we were breaking out of Newtonian uh, physics and the first law of thermodynamics, and maybe, maybe it didn't apply to humans. But that's not what we really think, is it? No, no, I am no way refuting the laws of thermodynamics. Actually, what I am talking about is that we've been applying them incorrectly to a human body in so much as, like, the first law of thermodynamics is really the internal energy as a function of state. It's something that cannot be directly measured. Um, you have to measure the uh, state of the system to uh, get to what the amount of internal energy is. And then the second part of that is the internal energy of the universe is constant. It doesn't necessarily mean the internal energy in your body is constant. And so I, I think by misapplying that first law to the human body, we've said, well, you know, energy can't be created or destroyed in the universe. So that immediately applies to my own body in the exact same way. The problem is when you make that statement, you have an implied ending to it. And so it's not just calories in equals calories out. You say um, that that says, I should say, um, that the calories in equals the calories out to do work. And that's the right. part that's not true. Um, because as we talked about, you, you have uh, this thing called the uncoupling protein in your body, just even in the mitochondria. It's just one example. And you vent energy from that as heat. Um, so the calories in does equal the calories out. It's just that they're not all used to do work. So, so the problem with this misunderstanding has been that, well, if all the calories in equals the calories out to do work, then all you have to do is eat less and move more. But that's not true. If you're not doing that, if you're not losing weight, then somehow your fault, you're at fault for not reaching my goal for you. Exactly. So the, the implication then becomes, well, you either eat too much or you're lazy. And, and I don't think that you become fat because you're lazy or obese because you're lazy. That's a better word to use. Um, I think that you, are, you become lazy because of being obese. So your, your loss of energy is more a symptom of metabolic disorder, not the result of your, your personality falls. Exactly. It's, it, it's the other way around. It's, it's, you know, we talk about something called like commutative properties, like A goes to B and B goes to A. And yeah, I'm sure there are some cases where somebody's sitting around and all they want to do is eat potato chips and watch movies or whatever. But, you know, I, I think in the vast majority of cases, people become tired because they're they're obese. And, you know, I, and I say this a lot. Obesity really is a state of starvation in your body. It's it's a state of having a glut of energy around that you are not physically allowed to 
uh, use to touch. And so exactly, exactly, you're incapable of using all this energy around you. So your mind thinks of obesity that like you're starving. You need to eat more. You need to be more tired. Like don't expend energy. We're starving. So you, you get in this state where you think there's never going to be enough energy. And so you're starting to process things differently and the metabolic system um, slows down and then becomes less efficient then. Exactly. Exactly. So again, you're, you're fatigued and tired because you're obese. You're not obese because you're lazy. And I think that's the pervasive, um, you know, deprogramming that we need to start uh, really getting at the heart of before we sort of change this conversation about like food and obesity in, in our country. Well, and part of the issue, it seems that uh, we have flooded our grocery stores and our food markets with suboptimal food that leads to metabolic derangements. Mm-hmm. And then in the consumption of these foods, when our our bodies don't know what to do with everything, then it develops this metabolic disorder and everything goes wacky. Exactly. The cool thing is there's actually evidence to support that claim. Um, there was a paper that came out in 2019. I forget if it was in the fall or in the summer, but I remember, James, you and I ran into it and we were like, tore this thing apart trying to figure out what the heck is going on. It was published in Cell Metabolism. It was mm-hmm. a paper. It was a ultra-processed diets cause excess calorie intake and weight gain. And uh, skipping all of the pertinent uh, thermodynamics, all the pertinent chemistry and things, just raw input-output, in the in the presence of uh, the foods that you're describing, the, the suboptimal foods, which in this context were called ultra-processed foods, um, all things being equal, there was a large amount of, cal- of excess calorie intake and weight gain um, when people were kind of allowed to do their thing. And that's that's something that needs to be investigated because the thing that makes food ultra-processed is also the thing that makes food shelf-stable, is also the thing that makes it a commodity, as in, it's not like there's a big conspiracy in the background going, oh man, we got to make food so bad that it makes people sick. If we're thinking in the interest of stability and longevity, in the sake of uh, an economical situation, this is kind of the way to go. The issue is now we're benefiting the economical situation at the cost of our overall medical situation, which seems to be a recurring theme in our general environment. In in our efforts to make things shelf stable, we are throwing a wrench in the works, if you will. And, you know, interestingly enough, we are built or seasonal variations. We've talked about cycles in the past, seasonal seasonal variability in availability of food, where some vegetables are available in the spring, some are vegetables, uh, some are available in the fall and winter and whatnot, depending on the growing season. But now we've processed everything so it's so shelf stable, that's not a a part of our problem anymore. it's becoming a problem in a different way. So the question is, Dr. Nathan, yes. we talk about a calorie is a calorie is a calorie, but a calorie isn't just a calorie, isn't just a calorie. And I suspect that's because of how 
each macronutrient, when we say macronutrients, we're talking fats, proteins, carbos, and those kinds of things. They are not all processed the same, are they? No, they're not in the body. As a matter of fact, when you talk about things like breaking down sugar for energy, we talk about glycolysis. And then when we talk about, you know, breaking down lipids for energy, that has an entirely different set of of bio biochemistry um, systems to break those down. And so, you know, the second law of thermodynamics, you know, entropy is a function of state and the entropy of the universe is always increasing. Um, And I didn't talk about this last time, but entropy's um, uh, units are pretty much energy over temperature. And Mm -hmm. um, so energy then is, you know, obviously entropy is a form of energy, right? So right, um, right. If, if, if the entropy of the universe is always increasing and you know that the entropy of your body plus the entropy of your surroundings um, has to equal a positive number, like it's always increasing, right? It can never be negative, that plus that. So if you, you know, yeah, right, that does that be, yeah, does that, and that, this is where people start going, oh my God, math is hard. I hate, I hate thermodynamics. Um, also the language of our universe so i don't care it's hard you better learn it yeah so but the problem is every transfer of energy then and this is why you can't have a perfect heat engine every time you change energy from one form to another and make yourself more ordered you have to meaning your entropy is decreasing you have to offset that with an increase of entropy to your surroundings so you're always losing energy to surroundings every time you have a transfer of energy so Knowing that each enzyme biochemistry system to break down these macronutrients, you know, they're, they're different. Are the number of enzymes the same in each one that break them down? You know, is, and, and the answer is obviously no. Are the cofactors for these enzymes the same? You know, before it gets into the mitochondria, I should say, you know, breaking down lipids, breaking down sugar, breaking down alcohol breaking down proteins, right? They, they all have different systems and the number of enzymes are different in each one. The cofactors are different. The resources are different. And so the number of energy transfers to make energy useful in each of those uh, instances is obviously different. So how can, how can right there, how can you say that a thousand kilocalories of fat is going to be equivalent to a thousand kilocalories of sugar? Can you guarantee that the number of changes of energy are the same. Can you guarantee that the reaction, um, the Gibbs free energy, like the the energy released during each reaction or or needed for each, is that going to be the same each time? Can you guys guarantee that? Because that goes back to this idea from that, from the first recording we did, where we were talking about how in a technical sense, you can use your, um, you can use that uh, process, the the uh, calorimetry in order to extract, I guess, how much heat the thing generates and therefore convert that to a unit called a calorie. But at the same time, our body has to do that. And it isn't quite obvious how much energy needed to go into that system in order to combust it in the first place. Um, and that's, that's a variable that sincerely matters. There's um, yes. what sugar versus protein versus fat versus alcohol. What is the buy-in? What is the activation cost to access that energy? How much do we have to invest? Well, when you zoom back out to more of the gut level rather than um, the cellular level, how we absorb each of those changes with time and with the constituents that you're consuming at the time. So if you just eat sugar versus you eat sugar combined with uh, fiber, uh, fiber, uh, high protein or fat, 
everything changes. Exactly. And I'm going to throw another layer onto that. Um, how fast is your stomach empty, right? And then what is your microbiome? We know that like there's certain bacteria in your gut that based on the type of fiber you eat are going to put out even chain versus odd chain fats. And, and just so just how it's absorbed, your microbiome, how your stomach empties, how you absorb the food, it can't be the same for those macronutrients. So now we have this exponential difference in the amount of energy that's available. And it's not even the same each time. It depends on how it's absorbed, what's there at the time. And then what is what are your conditions in the cell at that time as you're making that energy useful? I, I can't say that they're equal. As a matter of fact, I think that would be an exercise in futility to even try and calculate. I don't even know where you would start to calculate that. I believe that's actually called, like there's actually a technical term for that in like uh, in mathematics that's called a combinatorial explosion. Yeah. The first law of thermodynamics tells us we cannot directly calculate it, right? because the internal energy is a function of state. You have to measure the other things around it to get it. You can't directly measure the energy. So this is, this is almost a Schrodinger's cat kind of thing. Is the cat dead or is the cat alive? <laughs> almost. So Schrodinger's calorie, it's, an, it's a thing, I'm sure. <laughs> so I say, instead of saying, you know, you know, thermodynamics proves that calories in are calories out. Y yeah, that's true, but it's not just the calories out to do work. And, Thermodynamics in conjunction with our biochemistry literally proves, though, that not all calories are equivalent. So right here, just those the first two things we talked about then, how it's absorbed, what our system is, um, what you're eating the food with, um, and then just the enzyme systems that make that energy useful are different in each case. It literally proves, thermodynamics plus biochemistry literally proves that calories are not calories are not calories. You know, it probably should be grounded at some point what a calorie even is. Oh, yes. Let's define a calorie. Yeah, because um, let's be honest. Most of us know the word calorie in the context of that score thing in the side of the box of the label thing, where if we eat too much of it, then bad things happen, but maybe not apparently, but sometimes yes. It's <laughs> right. probably good to know what a calorie is in its own right, as opposed to as the villain of our story. Yeah, so a calorie is, and I'm going to read this uh, right from the dictionary right now, because I don't have this like memorized in my head all the time. Like You have this sort of conceptual understanding, but I think to explain it, it's better to read this directly. And it says that a calorie is the energy needed to raise the temperature of one gram of water through one degree Celsius or one kilogram of water through one degree Celsius. And that would be the kilocalorie. Right, because we're actually dealing with kilocalories. We're not dealing with a calorie in the, the traditional chemical sense, are we? Yes, exactly. And so it's just the energy required to raise the temperature of water. So that's what we're talking about. A calorie is just a, a unit of an amount of energy needed to raise the temperature of water. And it, it's good to draw that clean line between energy conversations about energy and conversations about the fuel that brings you that energy for example we don't burn raw petrol that we just pulled out of the earth to make uh, to move our cars we have to process it refine it transform it basically into gasoline mm -hmm. uh, for it to be effective enough and in a format that the machine that is our car can handle and use right if we just basically took suit like sludge from the ground and shoved into our car. I'm pretty sure bad things are going to happen. <laughs> well, exactly. Right. But it makes sense in that context. But if we take that same conversation, saying that a calorie in is a calorie out, and therefore it all should just be this basic arithmetic is the equivalent of saying 
look, man, it's all the same here. Just throw some, like, corn in the back of your car. It'll combust all the same, and then we're going to move. Yeah, yeah and, it's totally fine. I mean, right, we've made corn-burning engines, but that took a lot of labor. Well, and I think part of the real problem we face is we view a calorie as just throwing some wood in an oven or in, in a furnace and just lighting that sucker up and then let it go. We got some heat and some smoke coming out. But in reality, we are much more uh, complex than just a, a simple blast furnace. And that's where we get into trouble is we, we think of ourselves as just generating heat, but we actually convert all of this potential energy stored in chemical bonds to do all sorts of various things, whether it be building muscle, creating hormones, generating nervous tissue. It all plays a role in how these these chemicals are utilized. I, I personally think that maybe using the term calorie is doing us a disservice because of that. I, I agree with that, especially with sort of the, the negative connotation that we've given it over the past, what is it, hundred and some years. I think it was like 1870 was the first time we talked about legislation that, that started saying we should eat these type of calories as fat as opposed to saturated fat. Um, so we've, it's been 150 years that, that there's been this pervasive view that calories are bad because they make you fat, right? So I, I agree with you. So where do we take this idea? Yeah, where do we go from here? We, we've got this public perception that we're just generating all sorts of calories. And if we eat too many calories, then we're going to get fat. And if we're going to get fat, we're going to die, uh, which, you know, there are correlations for sure. But how do we go about changing how, how, how this is going to work? That's kind of a bigger question, I think. Well, I think, I think the question we need to ask then is how do each of these calories affect our biochemistry or these type of macromolecules, I should say, affect our biochemistry? It's actually funny you mentioned that idea. Um, and so in my household, right, we actually kind of, we don't talk between me and my wife and when we have friends over and we're just talking about this type of stuff because this is kind of our nerd thing if it wasn't obvious. We, we kind of shifted away from even mentioning calories, not because it's like, oh, taboo, don't talk about calories. It's like, oh, man, I need, to, I need to get more protein in my system today because of whatever reason. Uh, you know, do we eat enough carbs to run that uh, to run that event? Not sure. But the, the conversation transformed to being about the, the energy output in the form of heat into the fuel source that's going into the thing that is our machine, which is different. The calories are almost incidental in that conversation. Yeah, I, I, they're necessary to a point, you know, based on the starvation experiments that we talked about. You need a quorum of calories so that your body doesn't think that it's starving. Um, but it's it's the type of calorie you're eating, especially because, now, you know, we know that fat calories are treated differently than sugar calories are. So the, the better question is how do they affect our metabolism? How do they affect our biochemistry? And then, you know, if you're just talking about adiposity or, or fat storage, how do each of these type of macromolecules affect fat storage? And I think those are the questions that we need to be asking and, and making our diets appropriate to those questions. Fun fact, in the most perverse use of the calories in, calories out paradigm, people used to ingest tapeworms to help them lose weight. I guess the thinking was, 
they would have somebody else eat the food that they had already ingested. Question is, how did they get the tapeworm out? Okay, so now we've got to talk about what makes us store all of this fat, what makes us fat in the first place. And there's a significant control system over what gets to be stored as fat and what gets to be used in other ways, right? Absolutely. Um, I think the old thinking was that in excess of calories is automatically stored as fat. That was that calories in equals calories out to do work. And if you don't do enough work, all the extra calories are just stored as fat. Um, but that's not, you know, necessarily the case in so much as, you know, we need to really look at not, you know, just the amount of calories, but the type of calories, because it's the specific type of calories that, that causes us to store fat, not just the amount. So what type of calories are going to tend to cause us to store fat then? So I think the first question we ask is what what causes us to store fat is in in it's hormones in our body that cause us to store fat right so insulin being the number one that does it and you you can tell this because uh, you can look at the difference between a type 1 diabetic and a type 2 diabetic brand new ones right a, right, a brand right. new type 1 diabetic if you've seen them um, are usually very skinny and puny especially when they are type 1 diabetics at like three four or five years of age and then a brand new type 2 diabetic in general is somebody that has metabolic syndrome obesity in general. That's not 100% of the time, but it's a very large proportion of it. So the difference between these, because remember, diabetes is a dysfunction of how insulin is either used or not produced in the body, right? It's a dysfunction of insulin. So type 1 diabetics, they don't have any insulin and they're really skinny. And a type 2 diabetics has way too much. So if you don't have the hormone, you're not going to store the fat then? Yes, because you're in a more um, a glucagon-like state, which says release all your fat from your fat cells and use it as energy because we're not taking it in, right? Because it's not just the, the, the glucose in the blood that, that says, oh, store fat. It's, it's that it affects an insulin response. And the insulin tells your cells to take in that glucose, except exercising muscle, which can take in glucose without insulin. Um, in general, it takes insulin to push that glucose into the cell or to change the excess glucose that's not being used for energy when there's a backup in the um, mitochondrial oxidation pathway. When it backs up, it, it, it flips a switch and says, aha, we, we don't need to make any more ATP because the body doesn't make things to just sit around to be used. Um, energy is produced in such a way in the body that the reactions are are pulled through from the bottom. If you, if you follow what I'm saying, mm -hmm. um, basically it's the loss of ADP which causes that reaction to go forward and for you to make more ATP. It's not it's not started from the top down where we make ATP and we let it sit around like that would be osmotically uh, impossible for the body to maintain. So I have a really weird but kind of almost identical system that runs in a supply chain that that's just like what you're describing actually yeah. in, um, in Walmart and a lot of other major suppliers, what they do is when, so everything's scanned, everything has a barcode, everything is uh, a dig has a digital representation, right? So the minute you check out, let's say a gallon of milk, like you, you go to Walmart, you purchase some milk, you scan it into the thing. The moment that happens, 
a whole series of algorithms runs where the supplier ends up being informed that, hey, by the way, this Walmart needs to get some more milk. So what ends up happening is because that Walmart is one gallon milk down, now the pathway for the delivery of milk coming from the food trucks ends up gets rerouted so that they get it back, which means that the supplier to the food truck ends up gets rerouted so that more milk goes into that specific truck, which means that the demand to get more milk from the actual producers of milk, that's the farmers, ends up increasing. But it's all regulated at the level of, hey, you pull the milk out of the um, of the refrigerator thing. That That is so interesting. And um, I didn't know that, but that makes complete sense because, you know, corporations are in general, I would say, ruthless. They have to be. That's how they function. And and part of that, their, their sort of corporate identity is that they have to be very, very efficient in how they do things. And from our, looking at our bodies with how it, it pulls these reactions through from the bottom, doesn't push it through the top, that sort of makes sense. It's the most efficient way to, to make energy in our body. That would be the most efficient way for them to do their supply chain. You're saying we're That's, capitalists at our core. <laughs> we're capitalists at the cellular level, exactly. <laughs> I mean, that, that's really what it is. The, the way you're describing what it means to be a bottom-driven process is what I just uh-huh. described there. American supply chain like cap, uh, dynamics is exactly that system. Um, you don't just make stuff from on high and say, hey, we need to make more, I don't know, whatever, and everybody has to go buy it. That's technically um, the other version of rule, like a more um, centralized, whether it's totalitarian, fascist, whatever. It's a, it's a centralized rule versus a distributed one. But to be distributed rule means that it has to be bottom generated, as in we'll only give you more milk if you bought milk. Well, we, we can't have anything just laying around because that becomes problematic. That uh, invites infection and other things. So you have to be very efficient in getting yeah, how you use it. whatever thing. You've got to use everything. you got to use it all. I guess milk in this situation is an acute phase reactant. <laughs> I guess so. So when you do have that sort of glut of energy or glut of energy um, uh, potential, um, the body says, okay, sh- uh, glucose in this case, or other sugars, they're osmotically too um, too uh, poor for the body. So it, if it's going to store glucose, it has to store it as glycogen, it has to put it in a storage form, or it stores it as fat, which is a storage form of energy as well. right? So um, that's kind of, that, that's kind of what happens. Wow. So we, we know we have to use everything and we've got to either use it for work or use it for building materials or using it for storage. So I guess what is so problematic about um, eating too much of the wrong food that leads to obesity? So the, the, so then the answer, this goes into the answer to the first question we asked, like, you know, how do, how do calories affect our hormones? And in this case, you know, if, if insulin is what causes us to store fat, an excess of insulin, new type two diabetic, obese, storing fat versus a new type one diabetic, no insulin, really skinny. So we, we want to know then what foods, and this is just speaking about adiposity or fat storage, um, when we talk about other macronutrients, it's it, the conversation's you know a little different, but it's all the same sort of theme. But um, what foods then would cause us to release insulin? You know what 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 are some hormones that cause us to release insulin, and and what do our foods do at the hormonal level of us? Right. Ah, uh, so what what foods are we going to eat that's going to make us spit more insulin? So obviously the first one is is sugars, right? Mm. Um that says 
release insulin, store fat if we have too much of it. Our body regulates the amount of glucose that's in our blood at any time. Um, it wants to keep it in a very narrow window because, you know, if there's too much in the blood, you have diabetes, then you have all these problems because the sugar attaches to proteins, it glycosylates them. Basically, you know, we measure something called a glycosylated hemoglobin or, or sugar attached to hemoglobin. Um, and all of these proteins in like the blood, the blood vessels or our nerves that when there's too much sugar around, they, the sugar ends up attaching to them and they oxidize and bad things happen. So you like lose your sight, like retinal damage yeah. or inflammation you know, and all of that kind of stuff. Peripheral neuropathy, inflammation. Exactly. So, um, so besides sugar though, um, so elevated blood glucose tells us to release insulin. Um, surprisingly when free fatty acids elevate in the blood, insulin needs to be released. That is, that is another one that does. There are some free amino acids um, that, and it's not all of them, but some of them, um, when they are free in the blood, they potentiate insulin release. And so I think this is one of the reasons that if somebody's not, you know, exercising and then they're taking um, uh, like a whey protein supplement every day, they end up gaining a lot of weight from that whey protein supplement, not because there's sugar in it, but because just sometimes the the uh, free amino acids tell us to release insulin. So See, now um, there's a bunch of people that they can drink protein shakes as a diet drink. Right. It, <laughs> to, to a, yeah, to a point, for sure. So if you're if you're eating these like you know high amounts of of protein supplements and not working out, you're, you're going to cause an insulin release in your body. Not not as much as would be with glucose, but but there it, there will be a little bit of one. Now, and that's interesting because you hear in the popular press a lot about the glycemic index, i.e. how much your blood sugar will increase when you consume a food, but you don't hear a lot about uh, measuring insulin levels. And that's problematic because if you eat a bowl of ice cream, for example, the glycemic index for ice cream is actually quite low, but the insulin in increase is going to be the factor here that's going to make ice cream more lipogenic than not. Right. And there actually is an insulin index. Um, there has been a lot of good criticism regarding the glycemic index for that exact reason. So what was developed in response was a glycemic load index, which tried to normalize that amount of sugar spike to a typical serving. And people were like, wait, even that's not good enough because that doesn't seem to make a difference, right? So an insulin index was developed a couple, uh, a couple times but it is so limited in its scope compared to what we have for the other data set that I can only use it for like a couple choice items. It's not as robust. Like I can look up the glycemic index for insert random item in the grocery store for insulin load index. I have to like extrapolate based on the closest equivalent, maybe um, last research, maybe a decade ago. And that makes it a little less useful for sure compared to uh, a glycemic index, for example. But it makes it difficult as well, because how can we tell someone to go look up the uh, insulin index, right? Yeah, exactly. If, they, if the information is like not easily accessible, that's going to be really difficult. Now, interestingly enough, we, we were talking over our break about how the um, cattle industry has used some of this biochemistry that we were talking about to their advantage. And it, it's problematic as well because they're doing it to make meat more palatable to the human palate. Um, but what's what's been going on with that? So um, this actually goes 
along with the same thing we're just talking about right now. Interesting that you um, bring that up because there are also hormones that potentiate insulin release. So um, one of them is this new medicine, uh, one of these new categories of medicines called the GLP-1 inhibitors If people know like Victoza and all them. They do potentiate insulin release, but they do it in a way that um, only does it when glucose is around. There's something called gastric inhibitory polypeptide. Um, it, um, it also potentiates insulin release. And now um, glucagon, which is sort of like the, the balancing hormone to insulin, it also potentiates insulin release. And that makes sense if you think about it, because if you have glucagon around and you're making the liver is going through gluconeogenesis and putting out sugar, it wants to be able to potentiate that insulin release so that it doesn't overshoot the sugar level in the blood. So that makes total sense, right? But there's right. two you more. Know, dropping too low or too, go raising yeah. too high. Exactly. But there's there's two more um, hormones that cause us to release insulin. And this is, I think, what's going to tie into what you're talking about with the cattle industry is that um, growth hormone is one that uh, causes insulin to be released. And the last one is estradiol. So an estrogen causes insulin to be released. All right. And put in context, that's that actually kind of makes appropriate sense, right? What does growth hormone do? It's built into the name of it. It's the hormone for growing things. And we've said it a couple different ways. Insulin is the storage uh, format for, is a storage signal for the body. What that means in practice is if times are hard, right? If, if you don't have enough fuel to, to grow, you just invest, you use that money to survive. You use it to, to do what you got to do in the here and now. But the moment you have a surplus, the moment you have some savings, basically, you can begin to invest that, if you can see the financial metaphor developing in this one. But the mm-hmm. signal to go from, hey, spend everything now on like ammo and food because it's like the apocalypse into, hey, I think we can actually invest in a savings account or something, is this insulin signal. Um, so growth hormone should work alongside insulin because how are you going to grow if you have nothing to, to grow with, right? Well, I mean, growth hormone is is an anabolic hormone insulin is an anabolic hormone um i think i think when we talk about you know growth and breakdown we we sort of forget that insulin is like the penultimate anabolic hormone um and then there's like insulin like growth factor as well which um you know it, it does things just a little differently than insulin obviously but it's also an anabolic hormone and then if you you think about that even even our estrogens and our androgens they're also anabolic hormones right bodybuilders that put testosterone in take anabolic steroids. I mean, it's literally like that's, that's what they call them, you know? So I don't know what you're talking about. Nobody abuses testosterone. The industry is clean. Uh, it adds mass to the body. Exactly. Exactly. And ideally lean, but uh, we all know that it doesn't always happen that way. <laughs> <laughs> no, it doesn't at all. So, But it's good that you mentioned the food industry thing because um, look, we're, we're clearly elaborating a, um, an endocrine model for, for weight gain, for obesity, for so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And that's very different from the flawed uh, thermodynamic model of calories in, calories out. Emphasis on the flawed thermodynamic versus thermodynamic. But the endocrine idea is not new, actually. In fact, if we separate from that system that we're so invested in, as in humans, and look into other things, mammalian things that we don't care about nearly as much as in cows. This has been standard operating procedures since about 1950. Um, Typically, when you're raising cows, you have to make a choice. Uh, And 
you don't really make a choice. Is this going to be a dairy cow or is this going to be a meat cow, right? For your dairy cows, you you give them uh, bovine growth serum, uh, bovine somatotropin, so that they end up producing more milk. And there's a whole slew of side effects to that. However, if you want to make a meat-producing uh, cattle, what you end up giving them is testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, um, in various combinations. That's a bit proprietary from what I understand, in order to make basically a beefier uh, piece of cattle. Uh, reason being that, um, one, more meat per uh, cow is better uh, from a pure financial standpoint. But two, we seem to like things that are fatty and delicious because, hey, guess what? Fat is kind of delicious. The really cool thing about that is the whole point of giving them that uh, hormone mix isn't just to make them bigger. It's to make them bigger for cheaper, as in for the equivalent amount of grain fed, you end up with the same with a better end product. So let's just make up some random numbers here, right? You have a cow and you feed that cow like 50 kilograms of grain. Cow one will end up putting on an extra 10 pounds of meat. These numbers are completely made up, by the way. Versus if you take that same cow um, and give it the same amount of grain, but give it this hormone blend, it'll put on maybe 20 pounds of meat, which means that for the equivalent energy input, you gained a different amount of mass. And that's been known that standard operating procedure, as I said, the entire meat industry, because Americans love meat, is kind of piggybacked on this idea that we can manipulate the system to create more meat per unit energy invested. And for some reason, when we convert that to humans, we conveniently forget that that's a thing we do. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, basically what you were just saying is that we give them these anabolic steroids and we make fattier meat. A little bit of muscle maybe, but a lot more fatty meat, right? Right, right. Because if these right. cows were, you know, training, I guess, then maybe we muscle more so. Yeah, but they're not doing cows there, are they? No, they're not working <laughs> out. And the same thing happens with humans. If I give somebody anabolic steroids and they're not doing resistance exercise, they end up increasing their adiposity or their fat deposition. So, you know, you, you have to do resistance exercises if you're doing these anabolic, you know, hormones. Um, and unfortunately, I do not believe that these cows are going to the gym. So obviously they're putting on fat the same way that we would put on fat just by changing the hormone levels in their body. Which is interesting because we think of a, a good you know, T-bone steak with a little bit of marble in it. Oh, that's, that's what we want. But we don't think about the same thing happening to our muscles. So you don't want a good marbled muscle. You, you, you just don't. It's, it's not going to turn out well for you. <laughs> no, it's not going to turn out well for you at all. You end up being weaker, actually. Um, you're, you're sarcopenic, technically. <laughs> Right. But sarcopenia is delicious. Make no mistake. <laughs> sarcopenia is delicious. Yeah. But, um, you know, an, another thing about the way you know, we were talking about the cows is that, um, you know, there's a difference between, and this is a big thing right now, the difference between grass fed versus grain fed. And, you know, there's, there's a definite reason, you know, we, we know that grain fed leads to a fattier cow as well. And there's a biochemistry, there's a reason why this happens. So not only is it a hormone-based thing, like when we give them, you know, anabolic steroids, but it's also what we feed them that makes them fattier as well. Um, grains are broken down into what's called um, these short-chained, odd-chained fatty acids, propionate, propionate or propionic acid. 
is, is the one. And just by the way that odd chain is broken down, usually two carbons are removed at a time, so you end up with this extra carbon. Um, that gets shoved into a gluconeogenic or a glucose-producing pathway. And if there's too much glucose around, what does glucose get turned into? Fat. So, so if you don't know, the answer is fat. We know you, we can't hear you respond, but say it <laughs> exactly. right now. So, so there you go. There's, there's two instances now where it's not the amount of calories that we're giving these cows that make them more adipose. It's their hormones causing them alone can cause them to, to, to store fat. And the type of food that we give them causes them to store fat. Because, you know, I don't think we're, you know, taking these cows out and putting them on a treadmill and exercising them. So we're not changing their output or their, their, their calories out to do work. You know, that part of it, we're not changing that, that part of it at all, right. Between these two systems. Like if I give them grass versus grain, the grass will make them leaner and the grain will make them fatter. So our hormones dictate how we store fat, but also the type of food we eat dictates it as well. And, and like, so it's, it's, that, it's yeah. a combination of things, a, a real um, perfect storm, if you will, of exactly. giving it what we eat matters or fuel. And then uh, what we eat is the number hormone. one. There's, um, there's that old phrase that, um, that, that I remember hearing a lot as a kid, you know, throughout growing up and it's it's not like a really sophisticated idea, but it's you are what you eat, and I the more you look at this. the more you look at this data set, the more you study this formally, that becomes so much more true. The more you actually look into it, there's like weird unintentional wisdom in that phrase, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, and and building on that, if if we can accept that, you know, the calories in does not equal the calories out to do work, um, then you can't just move more to lose you know, your adipose tissue, which means that you can't outrun a bad diet. So what you eat um, trumps everything else that's going on in your body, especially as you start getting older. Yeah, maybe you have the metabolic flexibility as a 20-year-old and you can eat Twinkies and Ho-Hos and McDonald's and you can sort of maintain some sort of semblance of um, thin, but you can't maintain that through your whole life what you eat matters and what you eat when you're young matters um, more actually to, to the end, end ending, you know, later years in your life. Well, and that's a really good jumping off point for this episode to uh, uh, come to a close because we've got another at least episode, maybe two with Dr. Nathan here. Lots I'm of great excited. material to talk. This is great. But thanks again for joining us, Dr. Nathan. As always, it's a pleasure. We're glad to have you here on Mole and Bones, the osteopathic podcast where we talk about your health, your body, and how to fix things. So everybody, join us for another episode in another two weeks, and we will see you or hear you then. Thank you for listening to Roll and Bones, the osteopathic podcast. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Rollin' Bones Pod, or shoot us an email at rollinbonespod at gmail.com. That's R-O-L-L-I-N Bones, P-O-D. Rollin' Bones is brought to you by the University of North Texas and Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine. Producer Rob Upchurch and medical advisor Dr. Saj Survey contributed to this podcast. Medicine is a constantly changing science and art with various approaches from practitioner to practitioner. 
This podcast presents the Rolling Bones doctor's views of osteopathic medicine and osteopathic manipulative treatment and will be as evidence-based as possible. Comments, suggestions, or correction of errors are welcome. No money from drug or device companies is accepted. By listening to this podcast, you agree to not use this podcast as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you are treating. Consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This applies to the hosts, guests, and contributors to the podcast. Under no circumstances shall James Aston, Dante Paredes, Saj Survey, Podcast Producers, the University of North Texas, Texas College of Osteopathic Medicine, or any guests or contributors to the podcast be responsible for damages arising from use of the podcast. This blog or podcast should not be used in any legal capacity whatsoever, including but not limited to establishing standard of care in a legal sense or as a basis for expert witness testimony. No guarantee is given regarding the accuracy of any statements or opinions made on the podcast. This podcast is HIPAA compliant. While you may give your email address to make comments or requests, we will never share your email address or contact information with any third parties without your explicit permission.